You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations about the big issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And a big thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I want to begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners and custodians of this land on which we broadcast. And I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. On today's show, I'll be speaking with James Trezies from the Australian Conservation Foundation about the interim report of the Samuel Review on Australia's national environmental laws. We have a national critical habitat register, and this is a habitat that species absolutely need to survive. It's their breeding habitats, their roosting habitats. Hasn't been updated since 2005, and only five places are listed on it in all of Australia. It's, it's just, it's a farce. That's James, and we'll hear more later in the show. Before that, I'm speaking to two people about different aspects of alcohol and other drug consumption. I'll be speaking with Nicole Lee, an adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, about the paper she wrote for the conversation entitled, People Who Use Drugs Face Unique Challenges Under Hard Lockdown. Following that, Elizabeth Elliott, a professor of paediatrics at the University of Sydney, describes the campaign she's been involved in to get labels on alcohol bottles warning about alcohol consumption during pregnancy. But first up, Nicole Lee. And I began by asking Nicole what challenges people who use drugs faced during lockdown. There's two groups of people that we need to be concerned about. People who are in treatment who can now no longer access their treatment and people who are not in treatment who use drugs but now have no access to drugs. I guess the issues are going to be different for those different groups. So what about the people in treatment? Yeah, so the people in treatment, the government was right on the front foot. They provided services, they provided doctors and nurses, provided methadone to kind of continue people's treatment, but also provided access to counselling and those other supports. The other concern is people who use drugs but aren't in treatment. During the hard lockdown, and to some extent during the the general lockdown too, access to drugs is much more difficult. Some of those who use regularly will go into withdrawal, not having access to their regular drug supply. What are the risks if they do go into withdrawal? Withdrawal is when the the drugs are coming out of the system and the body has to readjust. Now, for most people, withdrawal is relatively mild. It's quite uncomfortable. It usually can be done at home. But for a certain proportion of people, particularly those who use alcohol heavily or who use opiates heavily, withdrawal can be life-threatening. So often they will need to be transported to hospital or to be under the supervision of a doctor or nurse the whole time during withdrawal, which is about 
five to seven days normally. Yes. Yeah, so was there any provision for people in that situation? So not that we could see, but there were like a, a temporary kind of hospital set up for people in emergency situations. So some of those people may have been able to access that service. Some of them may have been able to be transported to hospital, but it was much more difficult to identify those people because they were in hard lockdown. So that was one of the difficulties. The feeling of your paper was one of a, a kind of desire to get information out quickly to the government. What do you recommend to governments? The important thing is to consider the unintended consequences of um, some of these actions. We're thinking about COVID-19 and we're thinking about the pandemic and the physical health problems, but we also need to think about people who use drugs, people with mental health problems, people with a whole range of other social issues and complex social issues that need to be addressed as well. So when we make decisions about COVID-19, we also need to think about all of the possible consequences for the people that it's affecting. And one of those is the issue of access to treatment and access to illicit drugs and alcohol um, for people who need it to function day to day. And I notice you've written some other papers around alcohol use during the pandemic and giving some advice on that because it seems it's increased. It looks as though overall alcohol use has increased. There's been some people who've reduced their alcohol use, um, but overall more people have increased. Coming out of lockdown the first time, I was really concerned about people who have either increased or decreased their alcohol consumption, not taking account of that when they're kind of going out celebrating that we were for a very short time out of lockdown because if you have decreased your alcohol consumption your tolerance to alcohol will have dropped and so you don't need as much alcohol to get the same effects which means that there's a risk of over drinking getting drunker quicker than you thought and for people who had increased their alcohol consumption their tolerance had probably increased but there's also a risk if they're drinking more to get the same effect because their tolerance has increased they might be at risk of drink driving and having other accidents and getting into other trouble because their blood alcohol level will still be the same it's just how they feel that would be not as drunk just thinking of of all the events that have unfolded around uh, COVID-19. Are there some bigger public health issues that the government needs to be thinking of that we all need to be thinking about? The unintended consequences and the bigger consequences of some of the public health measures that have been put in place taking care of some of the most vulnerable in the community because they're much harder impacted by some of these measures than uh, the rest of us. I think back to the HIV prevention strategies and I remember the dialogues that occurred between people who could be more at risk. So the government actively set up groups to be in conference with who had input into policy. My feeling is that a lot of those consultative ideas and practices have fallen away. There are some processes supporting government decisions, including some academics that are, are having input. But I think you're right that the situation was viewed as so urgent this time that things were happening before the consultation processes could come about. There's certainly some things like very complex interaction between alcohol and drugs, mental health and domestic and family violence, for example, that I don't think we've really addressed in a, a meaningful way yet. And I'm concerned that that's kind of being put on the back burner a little bit. Nicole Lee, 
from the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, and she's also director of 360 Edge, which is a specialist alcohol and other drugs consultancy and works to translate research into policy and practice. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Well, I'm sure you heard the news Friday a week ago now, July 17th, that the labels for pregnancy warnings on alcoholic beverages have been approved and that those labels will now be mandatory. It's something my next guest has worked on for 20 years. Elizabeth Elliott is a professor in pediatrics at the University of Sydney. She runs a clinic in Sydney for children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and their families. So she sees firsthand the impact of alcohol use during pregnancy. And just a warning that if that touches you in some way or will cause you stress, the story will go for about 10 minutes. Rates of drinking in pregnancy are very high in Australia. The more you drink, the more likely you are to have a child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But we also know that alcohol can cause a lot of other harms in pregnancy. It can affect the mum. It can affect her health and mental health. It can cause prematurity, low birth weight babies, and it can have lifelong effects. What I'm hearing is you're concerned about the woman and you're also concerned about the fetus and then the the child. Are there any indications about who's more likely to have problems and who isn't? We think that about 60% of the general population in Australia drink alcohol during pregnancy, but many of them drink at low levels and many of them stop drinking once they are aware that they're pregnant. We know that the more you drink, the more likely alcohol will cross the placenta and may cause damage to the unborn brain and other organs. That's not inevitable. There are many factors that can determine harm. So the age of the woman, her genetics for metabolizing alcohol, the fetal genetics, even body composition can affect the peak blood alcohol level that you get when drinking. So you and I might drink same amount of wine and have an entirely different blood alcohol level, we want to reassure women who say, oh, I've drunk a glass of champagne. Will it have harmed my baby? We want to reassure them that it's highly unlikely that that's done any harm. On the other hand, we want to tell women that it's very difficult to predict the risk in an individual pregnancy and we don't know how much harm could have been done And we really need to get a public health message across that the safest option to prevent this harm is not to drink alcohol if you're planning a pregnancy and during a pregnancy. So that's a very important, clear public health message. And in fact, women say much easier to get a message like that than to get a message that, well, you know, you can have a couple of drinks here and there and as long as you don't have it at this time, etc. In March this year, Elizabeth Elliott wrote an article published in The Conversation entitled, Alcohol Labels Need to Inform Women 
of the true harms of drinking during pregnancy, I asked what prompted her to write the article. Back in March, when I wrote that article, was just prior to a vote by the Ministers for Health and Agriculture in Australia and New Zealand on the label that had been developed by Food Standards Australia and New Zealand over 12 months with input from consumers, input from experts and review of the literature. Uh, And they had been asked to vote in favour of this label being the one that went on alcoholic bottles. And unfortunately, the vote was negative. They voted against the label that was proposed. They voted against what we thought was a very clear, evidence-based label. And what they asked Food Standards Australia New Zealand to do was to take that label away and revise it. And fortunately, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand stuck to their guns and they made a minor revision. And the good news is that the ministers have voted in favour of that label. It was a very good national and, in fact, international community effort. The Australians and the New Zealanders got together and we got on side advocacy groups, parent groups, clinicians, researchers, policymakers. We went very hard to try and get this across the line. In 2009, that message came out in the national guidelines that it was better not to consume alcohol during pregnancy or if you're planning to become pregnant. Why has it taken so long to have the labelling on the bottles? The reason really is objection from certain parts of our community, namely the alcohol industry. We advocated for labelling to raise awareness. The health minister at the time, who was, I think, Nicola Oxen, said they had agreed to voluntary labelling. And that meant that the alcohol industry had the option of labelling. And we know that only about 16% of bottles were labelled. That voluntary labelling period was extended. And I think we got up to about 49% of bottles labelled. But often those labels were little and black and white, difficult to read, didn't give a clear message. And some of them even linked to a website that was funded by the alcohol industry. In late 2018, mandatory labelling was approved. In other words, the alcohol industry had no choice. They had to put a warning label on their products. Then came what sort of label was going to be most effective and give the best, clearest warning message. And that's when we ran into difficulty because the alcohol industry didn't like the label. They said it was too large, it was too prominent. They didn't like the colour red because it would be an expensive option. They didn't like the wording because they thought it might make people think that their product was harmful, which it is. And so there was really a a, a lot of objection, even up until Friday morning when the second vote was taken. So we're particularly pleased that actually the ministers saw to give women and families and children the information that they need to make the right decision. It's going to take another three years before that label goes on the bottles. Am I right about that? It was either two or three years. And again, that was a point of contention for the industry. I might just digress and say that interestingly, just before the vote last week, some members of the industry came out and said, look, it's not going to make any difference to us because we produce a new label every year for each vintage of wine anyway. So, yes, there is going to be a significant lag time, and that's why it will be important that this national awareness campaign kicks off and starts to 
raise awareness of the harms. And interestingly, Australian alcohol has had those sort of labels often when it's been exported to countries such as Canada, which have demanded that that warning label be on there. It's been a very interesting process and it's a bit similar to the tobacco debate. Very familiar when I think of the strategies used by the tobacco industry. And really that was one of the arguments we used that we're of course sympathetic to small industry that have been impacted by firstly the bushfires this year and now the whole economic downturn with COVID. However, this is a choice between the health of our future generation and our economy. In the scale of things, the cost of harms from alcohol use in pregnancy way, way higher than the cost that will be incurred from producing these labels. Elizabeth Elliott, Professor of Paediatrics at the University of Sydney. When I sent my email off to Elizabeth, as she was on holidays, I didn't realise that, of course, And when I got an email back from her at midnight saying, yes, she would do the interview, I just thought this person is really dedicated and really cares about this issue. And of course, it's a move that's been welcomed by many people across the community and across the socio-political spectrum. And I'll put some links on the website so you can see how people have responded. You're on 3CR. The show is listening notes and great to have you with us this afternoon. Coming up next... James Tracees from the Australian Conservation Foundation, talking about the dismal failure of our laws, our national laws to protect the environment. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And you're on 3CR, and uh, great to have you with us this afternoon on a kind of cool and uh, cloudy day. Last week, the interim report of a major review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act was released, and the news was not good. It found that Australia's environment is in an unsustainable state of decline, and laws set up to protect the environment aren't working. The interim report recommends major changes and the establishment of legally enforceable national environmental standards and clear rules for environmental protection. It also recommends the establishment of an independent environment regulator to monitor environmental laws. I caught up with James Strasees from the Australian Conservation Foundation to find out more. Australia is one of 17 megadiverse countries in the world and what that means is 80% of our wildlife and flora and fauna occur nowhere else in the world. They're endemic to this continent, yet we lead the world on the extinction of those very plants and animals, unfortunately. And this report comes just a month after the Auditor General's report, which uh, also looked at the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. What did that report find? The Auditor-General is an independent office that calls out government administration and there to make sure that there is proper and appropriate administration of public funds and public policy. The Australian National Audit Office found that the administration of our federal environmental laws is neither effective nor efficient. The most scathing, the most direct assessment of administration of law that I've read, it found that the department doesn't have the systems to track and map biodiversity offsets, which are required for almost every approval under our national environmental laws. 
see politicians standing up and say it's all going to be fine because they're going to deliver these great environmental outcomes elsewhere under these so-called biodiversity offsets. And yet they don't know where they are. There's no map of them. They don't track them. It was a very damning report. It certainly was. And the Australian Conservation Foundation has been doing research on the failure of the Act. What did you find? We recently did some analysis of five years of regulation of protection of koalas, or lack thereof, as it turned out. Once a species is listed nationally, the federal government is meant to take a role in making sure that significant impacts on those species are avoided and or regulated. When we actually looked at the five years of data, how much koala habitat was destroyed over the five years since it was listed in New South Wales and Queensland, and between 9 and 10% roughly of that habitat was regulated, which basically means you've got 90% of koala habitat destruction occurred without any federal oversight after the species was listed as a national threatened species, which just highlights how bad these laws are in protecting threatened species and particularly if you if we can't get it right for protecting an iconic species like the koala what chance in hell do some of our other less well-known species have you've got these incredible gippsland earthworms that were over a meter long that are a nationally threatened species they're not cute and cuddly like a koala but they're as equally as important they churn up the soil they occur nowhere else in the world they're a fascinating animal and they're going downhill fast there's two things there one is we're going to have to begin to imagine australia without koalas and that's a a pretty painful thought uh if something isn't done and done quickly by the sound of what you're saying and the second thing is i think we just need to know more about our own biodiversity and things like these incredible worms that, yeah, they do really important work for the environment. Australia's got these incredible animals, skinks, frogs. We've got mist frogs that only occur at the very tops of rainforests in Queensland and they're beautifully coloured. You know, we've got our alpine corroboree frog and they're meant to be protected by these laws. And I think that's also the challenge. People get switched off when we talk about legislation and when we talk about political processes and we talk about policy. That's kind of my bread and butter. But the reason I get up every day and I do the job that I do is because I can see the direct line of sight between this and protecting the things and places that I care about. After the summer's bushfires, there was an awakening. I certainly saw this huge uptick in concern. A billion animals were estimated to have died. And so now what we're going to see post-bushfires is koala numbers plummet. We're going to see other more common species, particularly, say, like New South Wales. I went into one of the burnt forests in Moreton Bay National Park recently, and it was just deathly silent. There wasn't an animal there. You go to some of the unburned patches and a lot of animals have probably moved into those unburned patches that could get there and you listen to the lyrebird running through its full chorus. The lyrebird is a species that we take for granted. They're in dire straits post bushfires and so we need to look to these laws and these systems to actually protect these amazing animals that don't occur anywhere else in the world. I'm speaking with James Trasees from the Australian Conservation Foundation. The interim report of the Samuel Review of the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act sounds promising in its recommendations. But could this be a double-edged sword, given this government's poor environmental record and the Environment Minister's desire to act quickly before the community consultations and before the final report is available? Absolutely. I think there's a huge risk there. I think there's a lot of people cautioning the government 
to not fall into the ideological trap that we traditionally see. The rhetoric around so-called green tape, which is a framing exercise used to talk and diminish the importance of environmental protection. If you ever hear the words green tape, it's people trying to devalue protecting the environment. There's some merit in some of the proposals put forward. Like, we absolutely need some form of a national standard for protecting biodiversity, for protecting our wildlife. And where people are shocked to learn that there aren't really national standards for protecting threatened species. We have a national critical habitat register, and this is a habitat that species absolutely need to survive. It's their breeding habitats, their roosting habitats. Hasn't been updated since 2005 and only five places are listed on it in all of Australia. It's, it's just, it's a farce. There are some merits in fixing up some of our environmental laws and putting standards in around protecting critical habitats and threatened species. But what we heard from the government, they're just going to race ahead to hand over what is effectively approval powers. They're going to use this kind of narrative around environmental standards to try and cover that push without actually clearly articulating the standards. Now, the distinction between what Professor Graham Samuel said yesterday, which was we absolutely need granular level standards to tell us what environmental outcomes will happen. And the rhetoric we got from the government, which was we've got the standards, they're in the draft report, you know, we're going to push ahead with this. Well, when you marry those two things together, they don't actually align. I've looked at the draft standards that have been proposed in the interim report. And if you were to say, how do they apply to a species like the koala? I would look at it and say the koala would be no better off than it is right now. So right now it's tanking and its numbers are diminishing. So there is no increase in protection for the koala. And actually, when I look at it, most of the hard and fast protections that are built into those kind of so-called prototype standards are really tailored towards species at the higher threat threshold under the threatened species category. So the koala currently is listed as vulnerable. It's highly likely it's going to be uplisted due to the bushfires and ongoing habitat destruction. But at its current status, the standards in that document, it's at best status quo, but probably more likely worst off because what we've seen is huge amounts of habitat loss under New South Wales and Queensland legislation for this species. We're seeing two things happen here. We've got a statutory review process of our environmental laws and we've also got a political process riding over the top of it. Eventually, it'll all come home to roost. What we need to start doing is holding much more clearly and articulately our politicians to account for the decline of biodiversity. What can people listening do? Sign petitions. The ACF, in our 50-plus year history of the organisation, this is our biggest ever petition. So we've had 400,000 people sign on. We're trying to get to 500,000. People can be writing to their MPs, writing to the PM, writing to decision makers, letting businesses know as well. The reason I add businesses is because on the other side of this debate, are a whole bunch of Canberra-based peak lobby groups, the Minerals Council of Australia, the Business Council of Australia. Their members can hide behind them and say, well, that's the Business Council, that's not Woolworths, that's not National Australia Bank, that's not Commonwealth Bank. But actually those institutions that sit behind those peak lobby groups, they're the ones who pay their fees and set those groups up. I think it's about letting the people who have political and economic power know that we have people power and that communities care about our environment. We need to put them on notice because at the moment, the lessons that our politicians have taken out of the 2019 election and even out of the most recent Eden Monero election, 
is that economy is king and that's the only thing people care about. And I don't think that's true at all. I think people absolutely care about what's happening in our environment and we need to let our decision makers know we've got to start drawing better connections about the things that sustain us and sustain our economy. And it's actually the environment from the water we drink to the air we breathe to places and species and wildlife that we really cherish. James Trussese, Nature Policy Analyst for the Australian Conservation Foundation, and lots to keep an eye on there, and write letters. That's my new COVID occupation. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. And it's coming up to the end of Listening Notes. A big thank you to all our guests, Nicole Lee, Elizabeth Elliott and James Tracees. And to you for joining us on 3CR this afternoon. Take care and stay safe. And don't go away, because right now it's time for Diaspora Blues. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.